Good morning once again. It's great to worship God together. If you didn't notice, we have some new flowers up here. So you can look at those if you don't enjoy looking at my face. That, that'll help you stomach the lesson a little more. I'm excited this Saturday because we have our annual father-daughter dance. That's going to be awesome. I have two daughters. They're so excited about their dress and their shoes and their hair and their bows and everything else. And I'm equally as excited because it's the dance contest. I mean, you know, different, different motivations for different people. But last year, there's just this epic memory of us coming in so close. We came in second in the dance contest. And while it is about having such a great time with our daughters and the hair and the dresses and the bows, for me, I'm gunning for you, Metu. I'm coming for you, bro. We're practicing this week, and we're going to be ready. No, it's really about, you know, just spending time and everything. Awesome. So if you have a Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 4. And I want you to think about this question as you turn there. Acts chapter 4 in verse 32. But if you were assigned to create the perfect community... All right, if that was your goal, if that was your task, if that was your job, creating the perfect community, what would you do? How would you go about that? How would you start? What would be your core principles? What would be your guiding principles that help build this community? And then, in contrast, what would be major problems, you think, to building this community? What would you do? How would you go about it? Because this is a question that has been discussed for, for quite some time. So if, if you're a teen, how would, you, how would you create the perfect community? Would it be teens in charge and adults follow? Would that be the perfect community? Or in your neighborhood, if you wanted to create the perfect neighborhood, would it be one that all services were offered free of charge, where your neighbor fixed your plumbing, your other neighbor fixed your electrical, your other neighbor did your house renovations, and it was just all free of charge? Would that be the perfect community? Perhaps. Or in your workplace where everybody did their job, they they turned their assignments in on time, they worked together, they sacrificed, whatever. What would you do to build the perfect community? And again, this question shows up in in literature, it shows up all throughout history. On the top, that's Thomas More's version of utopia. He thought this would be the ideal society. This would be the perfect community. And let's describe what it looks like. Now, literally, in in the Greek language, it literally means no place. Utopia. There's really no place like that. And then even in the modern day version on the bottom, if you're a video gamer, you know, I'm not looking at you, but I saw you nod your head. You might even know what version this is, but Sims is this virtual reality. And you probably know what version that is, but don't shout it out loud. But that's where you can create something that's similar to a perfect community. And, and, And when we talk about these things, what what makes a perfect community, one of the things that comes up as a problem is something like inequality. In fact, if you you poll millennials, that's, you know, if you're born between 1980 and 2000, roughly, that's the millennial generation. But if you poll them and say, what are the big problems to creating community? They, They would say this. They would say poverty is a big problem. They'd say education is a big problem. They'd say climate change is a big problem. All these prevent community. And while all of those do prevent building proper community, there's really no research or no think tank 
or no organization that really drives to the heart of building community. All of them really implement structures. The Bible, though, it gets right to the heart of it. And it says, sin is the problem for building community. And it's a human problem. And it's inside of everybody's heart. And to solve that issue, to to create a community that would be ideal, sin has to be solved. And then it can only be solved by this story. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it can be solved by the story of a man named Jesus who offers generosity and grace to everybody. That changes the human heart. And then community can be born. And this morning we'll explore just a small piece of this story. Because the Bible is a bigger story, but... This morning is just a small piece of what God intends an ideal community to look like. Let's pray together, then we'll start reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Father, we are grateful to come before you in worship, in truth and spirit, and take communion, and sing, and fellowship, and hear your word. And we pray, Father, that your spirit really is the, the major agent of change, really quickening our mind and our hearts and bringing us to action personally and as a church, God. Help us to really see what you want us to see inside these scriptures and not what we want to see. Father, and I pray as a result we're all changed and we help the city and this country understand this gospel message as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, let's read together and talk about three points centered on the idea of community. In Acts 4, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. That's a passage single brothers used to use quite extensively in the single household. Hey, we're all good. We're all, we share everything. And with verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now that's the good news. If you're familiar with this part of the story, this is the shocking, deadly serious news. No pun intended. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. This is a great first church service for you to come to, you know. Verse 6, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. This is shocking. The death of her husband isn't even told to her. 
They just flat out bury this guy. Peter asked her in verse 8, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes. She said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? The feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, of course, right? Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It doesn't just scare the church, it scares those outside of the church. Everybody's scared because of this event. Now, in the context of the story of Acts, the first few chapters of the honeymoon, it's awesome. They're fired up. They're, they're praising God. They're doing everything together. And then there's a little bit of persecution that comes. Acts chapter 4, they're preaching, and the authorities say, you can't preach anymore in that name. So there's, there's external persecution. Now in chapter 5, there's an internal conflict. Or somebody's been lying, there's deception that's happened, and they die, and the church is afraid. And rightly so, okay? This message is a sobering message. And, and Luke, again, is describing community. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, verse through verse 34 and 5 is almost similar to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where it talks about the community and how they're, they're helping each other and they're, and they're moved by the grace of God and they're sharing everything. And then he gives a positive example for us to follow by a fellow named Joseph, who we call Barnabas. And then he also gives a negative example in Ananias and Sapphira. So let's look at three points this morning. Point number one is the gospel. The gospel creates community. That's the only real thing that, genu that creates genuine community. Secondly, an example to avoid. And thirdly, an example to follow. The gospel creates genuine community. In the, in the big story of the Bible, in the very beginning, God creates us for community, okay? Man and woman are supposed to be together. He says, be fruitful and multiply. We fracture that. We say we really don't want that community. And the remainder of the story is God really trying to reconcile us in community. Over and over and over again. Adam and Eve, bringing it back. Abraham, I'm going to choose you and you're going to build a community. Israel, you're going to be a community that represents community to the entire world. And on and on and on. The early church, you're going to be a community that the, that the whole world can see. And here we see Luke kind of describing that in verse 32, verse 33, verse 34, and verse 35. But what is the core principle that creates this community? Well, it tells us in verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, there was no needy persons among them. So what created this, this generosity, this self-sacrificial culture? It was they were talking about Jesus and the resurrection. That's what the passage says. They, they, they started talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And then after that, God's grace seems to be activated in this group. And as a consequence, everybody's taken care of. There's a flow about this. The gospel is the core thing that generated this entire community. And it's pretty shocking if you think about it for many reasons. But let's just talk about two. One... 
They never specifically said, you guys need to share with each other. That was never talked about. What created that? It was the gospel message, the grace that people experience, and they said, ah, I've been changed. I want to help people. Let me share voluntarily. And that's the flow of this passage because verse 34 says it was from time to time. So there was never a mandate. There was never a criteria to be a part of this group. You must sell your possessions. That was never a criteria. It was they were so moved by the grace of God that when they saw a need arise, they met it. That's pretty shocking because, that, you know, without that specific teaching, that's just hard to generate, okay? That's what goes on. And the size of the group. Remember, it started in Acts chapter 1 with how many members? 120. Acts chapter 2, it explodes to what? 3,000. Acts chapter 4, it balloons to what? 5,000. That's just the men. So we're not talking about a little group where, okay, there's, we have a Bible talk of five or six people and somebody needs help. We can rally around it. We're talking about a church of 5,000, at least. And that bold in yellow says God's grace was so powerful that they, they were so generous. No one was needy. No one was flat out needy. That's shocking to think about. And how did it all begin? But God's great. You know, even in, even in the family, when a family grows, <laughs> you know, the first child, every need is noticed. Everything you're aware of, every time they need clothes, every time they need food, you're keenly aware of all of that. But by the, the third, or if you have more than three, by the time the third child comes, does Luke need clothes? <laughs> is, is, he, is he eating yet? I don't know. I mean, like, but but that, that happens in a small family, okay? Now, as a group grows, it, you know, some needs just happen to be neglected just because the group is growing. This group is over 5,000. And no one is needy. And, and so the gospel, it really inspired this sense of, man, I want to be generous toward my, toward my neighbor. I want to be generous toward my brother and toward my sister. And they kept spreading the gospel story. So the gospel created this community that wanted to talk about Jesus and wanted to take care of one another. And it's awesome. How many of you have been to Paris to this water bar? Probably, probably not many of us, but this is a water bar in Paris, okay? And you may say, well, what is a water bar? Well, a water bar is a bar that is luxurious enough to allow you to taste and sample at least 50 different waters, 50 different bottled waters from all over the globe. If you would want to do such a thing, if you're ever in Paris and you want to go to a water bar, then you can go there and you can sip on anything from Voss to whatever other kind of waters they have. If you've never had Voss, I suggest it. Never tried it, but that's one of the waters they, they serve here. Now, I personally like mine from the tap and the bottle here, but, but, but normally, you know, you go in there and, and I've watched a video about it and people are like sampling these waters. This is gross inequality, okay? Because, statistically speaking, there are 800 million people on the globe that lack proper water resources. That, that, that's, that's shocking. Or there are 3 billion people on the planet that don't have access to like proper sanitation. Okay, that's, that's gross inequality because here are these people in a water bar sampling waters from all over the world not thinking one bit about 
everybody else on the planet that doesn't have that access, right? And you think, man, that's shocking. That's why people are outraged and say, we need to redistribute the wealth. We need to redistribute the water. That's the problem. The structure is the problem. The gospel says, no, it's not structure. Structure doesn't change a greedy man to be generous. That's the, that's the real root of the problem. Greed. There's plenty of resources to go around, but people are greedy. And the gospel changes a greedy heart to be generous. A structure doesn't convert the heart. Now, these structures are awesome. And we need to pray for all this kind of needs all around the world. And they're helpful and they're beneficial. And that's awesome. And praise God for those kind of projects that help put water in these places. But it doesn't change the human heart. It doesn't create community. Only the gospel creates community. Like what we see in the Bible. And you know the truth is everybody wants to be in some part of the community. That's how we're created, isn't it? It's not called isolation media. It's called social media. Because people want to be social. They get on there because they don't want to be isolated. Right? Everybody has this desire. We all want to be a part of a group that says, I want you to love me even when you really get to know me. Even when you really see all of my flaws and you see all of my quirks, I want to be a part of a group like that. I want to be a part of a group where I know my needs will get met if I'm in need. What kind of group is that? A group created by the gospel. And I want to invite and encourage you to find out more about this. If you're, if you're just checking us out for a one-off visit, I, and if you want community, I really encourage you to check this story out and check our fellowship out because I believe we are a community that's created by the gospel, trying to spread the message and trying to help the needs of other people. Amen? Secondly, an example to avoid. Ananias and Sapphira. It's a grim tale, isn't it? As I sample my water. In terms of building community, they are an extremely negative example. Now, when you read this, or when I read it, 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 at face value, you could argue this is pretty harsh. This is pretty harsh. Right? I mean, there's, there's, they, they, they sell their property. And they bring it before the apostles. And and they keep some of it for themselves. Which, that in and of itself isn't bad, okay? They kept some of it themselves. But but for some reason, right right after all this takes place, men come in and carry their bodies out and they're buried. And it goes from an encouraging culture of, man, everybody's needs are met. Oh, snap. Did you hear about Ananias and Sapphira? They just got buried for lying. And so what, what is going on here in, in this story? And you have to think about what Luke is doing. Because he's, he's doing something purposefully. As he, as he talks in chapter 4, verse 32, or verse 34 and 35, there was, you know, nobody's in need. From time to time, people are selling their homes. People are selling their land. And, and it's creating this, this culture. And so what happens when you do that? Let's say somebody over here sells their property. We say, man, that brother and sister, they're so sacrificial. They get a little bit of praise. A little bit of elevation. And then, you know, not intentionally, but as a consequence, it does kind of raise the pressure. Because then I feel like, 
oh man, I, I gotta sell my house. You know, or you, you, may, you may feel that, you know, kind of pressure. And if a lot of people are doing it, and a lot of people are getting praised for it, you may feel like, man, I just feel compelled to do it as well. That, that's, some, that's some of the pressure that's going on here. Now, you can actually fulfill that and say, yeah, I want to be generous. I want to be just like the other people. Or you could be tempted to appear like you're being generous and get the praise and get the recognition from the group. And I believe that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira because somehow along the way they talk about it because that's what Peter says or that's what Luke says in verse 2 with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest at his apostles' feet. It wasn't like keeping money for yourself was bad. It was because somewhere that they had talked about it together and they say, I got, I got this plot. You know, there's, there's a lot of people getting praise and recognition for being generous. We got this piece of land that we can sell and we'll keep back some of it for ourselves but we'll pretend like we give all of it. And when we do that, think, man, just people are going to think we're generous. People are going to think we're awesome. Deal? Is that, is, does that sound good to you? And there must have been some agreement. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. And so this wasn't like an accidental, innocent act. They were working together. And that's, that's the word that's used when, when Peter talks to uh, Sapphira. How could you conspire? Verse 9. How could you conspire? That's the idea of a symphony. You guys work together. To test the Lord. And, and you read this and you think, man, that's so wrong. But before you shake your head, I think that there's a bit of that in all of us. The desire to appear more virtuous than we actually are. Yeah. That's in you. That's in me. That's in all of us. We want to look good. And sometimes at the expense of looking good, we try to deceive people. That's what's going on here. And, and, and they just thought they were going to lie to the apostles. But, but Peter lets them in on this, on this big truth. Where he says, you, you think you're lying to human beings. Verse 4. You've lied to God. You've tested the Holy Spirit. Earlier in verse 32. This, this fellowship is described as one heart and one mind. So they're all together. And Ananias and Sapphira, they say, we're going to. We're going to break away from that. We're not going to share the same mentality. We're not going to share the same heart. We're going to keep some back. We're going to pretend to look good. And we're going to test them. And they didn't verbally say this, but they were testing God and the Holy Spirit. Wow. They challenged the very spirit that created this community. This is a blatant disregard. This is wild. And the result, there's burial. Two gravestones. Imagine that. Imagine. I mean, this doesn't really inspire me to give to church, okay? <laughs> you know, this isn't like an inspiring, like, here, let me, let's talk about giving. And let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. If I was in that church, I'd be like, man, you got to be honest with God yeah. and each other. Yeah. And each other. Because there is a connection. When you lie to your brother and sister, you're not just lying to your brother and sister. You're lying to the Holy Spirit that created this community. And you may not be judged like this, but you will be judged at some point. And that's why this is a warning and it's an example to avoid. It's an example to avoid. There's a similar story in Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. Luke uses the same Greek word. In Acts chapter 5 verse 2, they're both in yellow. The Hebrew, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but it's translated at some point into Greek, which is the Septuagint. And when you read the Septuagint, that's a Greek word. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, it's the same Greek word that Luke uses. In Acts chapter 5 verse 2, why? He's letting them know, this story is about Achan, who saw something he wanted. He 
took it. He kept it. He buried it. And what happened? That was a sweet catch. What happened? He got stoned along with his whole family. Why? Because he lied to God and he lied to the community. And God was making a statement. I'm building a, I'm building a community. Don't deceive people. Don't deceive people. Deception corrodes community. I think about my own life, my own upbringing. My dad kept back money from the company he worked for. He embezzled money. Went to jail for three, three and a half years. To this day, I'm uncertain of the whole story. Despite me sitting in front of him and asking him, what happened? And I got, I got a story that didn't even make sense. But I am certain of the consequences. Because when he went to jail, that meant my mom had to take myself and my brother to live amongst my grandmother and great-grandmother simultaneously. We had to swap houses on the week and weekends. My brother and I shared the bed. And it wasn't the greatest years, but my mom was working three jobs just so she could get money so that we could get our own little tiny house together. But all because of deception. All because of deception. And I, I didn't know the whole story, and I still don't. And then when my brother and I went to his funeral in 2001, there was a woman that approached us and said, your dad died at my house. I would never seen this woman before in my life. It was a woman he was having an affair with. And you think, what a, what a gross time to bring that information to me. Get out of my face. I, I was, we were so... Angry, but that deception corroded our family fabric. Now that, that's still in me. It's in all of us. Okay, you know this. It, 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 and, but these are examples to avoid deception corrodes community. You've seen it in your life. You've seen it in family life. Don't let it happen in God's church. It's an example to avoid. You cannot practice deceit and build biblical community. 1 John 1, verse 7. If you're lying to one another, you can't have fellowship. That's what that verse says. You say, my fellowship is shallow. My fellowship is weak. Well, you're lying. Somewhere along the way. To yourself or to others. And when you practice this, you can't experience true Biblical fellowship. You're keeping something back. The scriptures are clear. Stop it. Stop lying to each other. Stop lying to the Holy Spirit. And be honest with one another and with God. Amen. That's an example to avoid. Lastly, we want to have a good example, don't we? An example to follow. That's Casa de Joe, because he's known as Joseph, also, also Barnabas. So that's his house, right? He, he's the good guy. He's the one. Is the, he's the guy we want to imitate. Yeah. He's the one we want to follow. And Luke does this pretty deliberately. He places these stories back to back. Here's Joseph, a good man, an encouraging man, sells everything he has. And right on to the tail end of that, Ananias and Sapphira. And, and Luke says, look at this guy, look at Barnabas, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. And then he'll end up going to Cyprus with Paul to help some of his home people. Whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke's introducing this character as kind of a technique he does. He drops a little name and then he brings him into the story later, which he does in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. What is Barnabas doing in Acts chapter 9? He's saying, hey, Paul, who previously used to be Saul, who persecuted the church. He says, come and let me connect you to the church. Now, what do you think the church thought about that? 
But here's Barnabas, this guy who's an example to follow. He's generous. Why? God's grace has changed his life. He wants to give to people and he wants to connect people. He wants to build community. That's what he's doing in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. In Acts chapter 11, when, when the mission gets spread to become a more Gentile population, they send Barnabas to go check it out. And he goes, he says, man, this, there's some really cool stuff happening. Gentiles are becoming Christians. He's connecting Jew and Gentile. He's an example to follow. In chapter 15 of Acts, John Mark, one of their missionary companions, abandons them. But he gives them another chance. It's, it's such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas split ways for a little bit. But Barnabas says, I want to give him a second chance. Why? Because he's an example to follow. He's generous and he's worried about connecting people. He's an example to follow. This guy clearly understood God's grace. He clearly had been impacted. And the result was he was giving generously and he was connecting people. That's awesome. That's such a great example to follow. In the beginning of the Bible story, God created us for community. That's what we are destined for. He he makes man in his image, and and part of that means that we co-reign with God. God's will happens in the world through us helping him work together for his will. So it's not just completely God, but because we work together with God, that's what happens in the garden, because we're we're supposed to help bring about God's will on this earth. And part of that is be fruitful and multiply. Build community. That's from the very beginning. By Genesis chapter 11, they don't want to do it. They want to stay together and they want to make a name for themselves. That's why Genesis chapter 12, God says, okay, I'm going to start again with Abraham and he's going to be a real community. And here we see Barnabas carrying on this story, wanting to give generously to people, wanting to connect to people, wanting to build genuine community. There are so many examples of this type of spirit in our own fellowship, I can't even run through them all. And if I did, some of you would lose your reward in heaven. (laughs) You know, we've had singles in campus go to retreats, not because they had the money, but because someone in the church said, I'm going to send them anonymously. That's, that's building community. That's extremely generous. Why? Because they understand the grace of God. They want to help. They see a need. A need has arisen. They want to help. They want to build community. We have people that have needs all over. When, when, when people first come to this church, they say, what do you need? You need an iron? You need a bed? You need a refrigerator? What, whatever you need. They see a need, and they meet the need. It happens over and over and over again in this church. Praise God for that. But let us continue that. Let us continue that and help bring others into this community as well. To be an example to follow, grace has to turn into generosity. You see that happen in the life of Barnabas. And you think about being honest. Honest is just being generous. Hey, let let me just tell you who I really am. I'm not going to hold it back. I'm going to be generous and and I'm going to tell you what I'm really like. I think all of us can be more generous in in our honesty with one another. That's a community building concept. Generosity often thought of as financial giving, and it is that, but it's not only that. That's what happens in this passage. And our church has responded to the call of being generous. We had a talk about a month ago about raising our contribution, and it raised. Praise God. And that's the first time we've really talked about it in, what, three or four years. People are eager to build community and eager to be generous in connecting with others. That's what Barnabas does. He says, hey, let me introduce you to Paul. Don't really ask him about his background. 
but let me introduce you to him anyway. <laughs> right, he used to be a church killer, but here he is. You guys go have some fellowship. We'll go there and get some tea. So, but, but that's the kind of connection. Hey, let me introduce you to my friends. Let me pull it in. That's community building. But it also happens in our assessment of others. We can be generous because sometimes we, we, we see only the bad. We see only the wrong. And that's not a generous example. But Barnabas, he sees, he sees Paul. He says, man, this guy's gifted. I'm going to bring him into the fellowship. He sees Gentiles becoming Christians. And he thinks, this is good news. We can connect and we can reach out to more and more people. He sees John Mark and he says, this is another guy that can have another chance. Because he's generous in his assessment of other people. Barnabas is an example to follow and for all of us to imitate. As we conclude, structures and sermons don't convert hearts, okay? The world may say, here's a problem, inequality, wealth, poverty, etc. Change the structure, redistribute the wealth, problem solved. The Bible says no. The gospel solves the problem. Because the gospel is the only thing that really deals with sin. It's the only thing that turns a heart of greed into a heart of generosity. And it changes their character. And that's what happens in this passage. They're changed by the resurrection. They're changed by God's grace. They start seeing needs and they start meeting needs. And we're called to avoid deception. In this church, for you as an individual and us as a, as a church, let's let the Holy Spirit create this type of community here in our fellowship. A fellowship that says we, we have the same heart, we have the same mind, we, we believe in the same Jesus that resurrected and his life has changed us and we're, and we're gracious to one another. We show generosity to one another and we show generosity to a lost world by building community. Amen. Amen.